Yeah, yeah. All right, do that again because we're recording. I'm ready. Okay. This is Live from the Table, the bonus episode. Coming at you on the Ridecast Podcast Network. I'm Dan Natterman. We got Perry L. Ashenbrand with us tonight, as always, and Dev David Hoff. We're, do, we're, we're actually moving to an all-classic rock format on the podcast, and we're going to start things off with Chicago, If You Leave Me Now, from 1977. And Pizza Terry was in rare form. <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. We are not switching to an all-classic rock format, <laughs> although I would very much like to. All-classic rock podcast. That's great. I'm not sure that... Uh, that song is even classic rock necessarily, but uh, we have 88 degrees here in New York City, partly cloudy skies, and traffic and weather coming at you on the ones. Anyway, um, I'm just ready. What are the calls really, on? It's amazing. You have an amazing, he has an amazing voice for this. I agree. It's, I agree. It's fairly basic. You just, you just give the weather, you, give, you, you talk about the BQE a little bit, and you got a radio show. <laughs> Say something about the BQE. As an accident on the BQE, we got traffic backed up all the way to the Bruckner. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be slow moving through rush hour, traffic moving normal on the Major Deegan and <laughs> side crossings. Yep. Um, anyhow, so uh, good stuff. we are uh, hot. Still in lockdown, and the summer is, is coming to a close, so one wonders what things are going to be like. Ariel, you're in a new room with a lot of light. That's so funny. That's what Dan just said. I am in a new room. I moved. Oh, you did? Yeah. I mean, also to a temporary... Okay. Temporarily seeking shelter yeah. from the pandemic. Yeah, sure. Do you, do you have any idea of how long you're going to be in your present present spot i mean until until there's no further guidance from the city and all of yeah that. i mean until, until there until there's um a comedy world until there's school yeah. until there's you know yeah. until i can yeah. function yeah Your kids went back to school in uh in september or my, i my kid is doing remote learning yeah. um from all of my friends and the people i'm speaking to it seems like uh 50 50 50 percent of them are sending right. their kids um although i just read something that a uh, private school in the west village opened and now they had to close down for two weeks because two people tested positive yeah would you feel comfortable sending sending your kids, even if even if that were a reasonable option? It is an option. We could choose okay. for his school, and I'm not sending him. Yeah, yeah, right. I don't. I mean, I don't think they're going to be open very long right. anyway. Yeah. Like I think. Well, I, I was. I was talking to somebody I know in Sweden. There's. I mean, um, you know, you know, this is, you can read this anywhere, but their schools are open and they've been open. Uh, their their bars and restaurants have been open. They're not wearing masks, and they're the only thing that's closed are theaters, movie theaters, and theaters in general. And they're yeah, I mean, they're, they're, do, they're, do you know? Do we have? <clears throat> not do we have, but do we know what the outcome of the herd immunity program in Sweden has been? Are there that many more people 
that have well, they have a higher sick. death per, per capita death toll than a lot. Is of it that much higher? I don't know if it's that much higher, and and it's lower than other countries. It's higher than some. It's lower than others. Well, if it's if it's lower than some and higher than others, and and it puts it in some relatively moderate range relative to other countries, then uh, wouldn't you be better off? I mean, if that's the yeah, I I, I don't know. It, it, you know, it's like what are we waiting for? We're we waiting for a vaccine and let tell us we're waiting for a vaccine. It's like, it, it seems unclear to me what we're waiting for. They're not yeah. really telling us what exactly are we waiting for? Are we waiting yeah. for a vaccine? Because if there's no vaccine, yeah, when you, there's going to be an increase in cases when you send kids to school, you know, right. Um, the kids probably won't have a severe case and they'll probably, you know, recover just fine, but yeah, they're going to get it. Some of them. So I don't know what we're, what we're waiting on. By the way, um, I want to yeah, talk guys, a bit about... I'm looking, wait, I'm looking at this. I can send it to both of you and you can screen share it. But I'm looking at the numbers in Sweden right now. And they seem to be on um, like this. They're oh, really? Up. On yeah. its way up. Cases are um, up. Hang on, I'm going to send it to you guys. Well, we don't need to... Well, I, mean, I don't know how to screen share anyway. That's more of Noam's uh, expertise. He loves to screen share. No, and of course, we don't know what the, what the deaths are. Right. Uh, I mean, we, we, you know, and also we don't, we don't know what the, um, what the outcome is economically in this country as it relates to uh, unemployment, suicide, depression, um, all of the all of the externalities of you know clo- closing closing up, and so it'll be fascinating, you know, in a year or two from now to look back and see whether or not Sweden um, fares any better than other countries who did shut down. But I guess that's neither here nor there since we don't really know. I just didn't know if Sweden was was a calamitous situation right now, or if they seem to be operating no not much worse than other countries who did shut down. And they also, they are social distancing. I mean, people are more likely to stay home in Sweden, but it's, it's all voluntary. You can go to a restaurant, you can go to a store and the kids are going to school. Yeah. I don't, I don't see with America's, you know, I, I, I just ordered this book and they're talking about how, you know, the, the notion of American individualism as it relates to like countries where people listen, uh, you know, we aren't that well. Our culture is less um, organizationally. We we our culture doesn't lend itself towards everybody following the rules, right. and so we see what's going on mask wise. I mean, the other offshoot of that in terms of productivity is like you know product innovation and things like that. Americans are very good at, but we can't seem to to make it make it happen in a group sense. Uh, well, although I we haven't had tremendous guidance from government. I definitely think anyway. we're more, individualist, more individualistic. We don't, I don't think we have much sense of we're all in this together. I think that's one of the reasons that's why right. universal health care is, is, is not really, uh, you know, is a controversial idea here because we don't really believe yeah. in helping each other. We don't we feel need, united. We need an Asian discipline. An Asian discipline is what we uh, need. I think to have Asian discipline, you need Asian Asian people. Yes, that's the I problem. Mean, it would be a good start anyway. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, we, don't have enough, we don't have enough of those. Well, you know, the Germans, the Germans are the Asians of Europe, um, and they seem to be doing that. They seem to be 
capable of all marching in lockstep, for better and for worse, of course. We understand that certain historical drawbacks to, to everybody listening to one guy. But uh, you know. I don't understand how wearing a mask becomes uh, my freedom is being infringed yeah. upon. Yeah, no, no very, well, Americans are a funny crew, aren't they? You know, they. Uh, do you think? Do you think that this would have been the case, Periel, if? Um, if we weren't already divided, like, do you think that the notion that a lot of people politicize wearing a mask is cumulatively worse because we were so divided when it all began? Probably. Yeah, I think I mean, so. Probably. It's idiotic, though. It's like you wear a seatbelt, right? Like you wear fucking shoes. You wear right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right. I think, Doug, that's true. I think that, right. you know, people are just looking at reasons to pick a fight. You know, when you're, when you don't get along yes. with somebody, anything they say yes. Is, is, yes. is annoying to you and, and you want to, yes. you want to uh, snap back. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the seatbelt, you know, I mean, it's almost a good premise for a joke, but it, it's or potentially, but the, um, the notion of a seatbelt has not become politicized. We all agree that you're more likely to survive a car accident with seatbelt. And if that's the case with masks, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if nobody's politicizing seatbelts as, as, and it becoming a cause celeb for, you know, um, what, clawing freedoms from people, then why would you, why would you suddenly politicize in a major way the notion that a mask is probably helpful? Part like, of it is, part of it is that, you know, it's a, you can't see the uh, COVID virus and it's a little bit, and the truth is, I sent you something from the CDC, Periel, this week where the CDC says masks might be helpful. Even the CDC doesn't go as far as to say masks are definitely helpful. The CDC said masks might be helpful. Well, but isn't that the same, the same? Seatbelt, everybody, no, nobody's saying a seatbelt might help you. Everybody's. Well, but, but yeah, but although that is true as well, right? I mean, as, as a premise, I mean, there are people that were thrown from cars who, who ended up being okay because they weren't wearing their seatbelt, though they are the exception. But you can make an argument that, in theory, you could be safer without a seatbelt. Just statistically, you're not. I don't know. Well, maybe. Um, I'm trying to find something. Yeah, I mean, if, if the seatbelt laws were new and they were brought up by right, right. Democrats, maybe yeah, there yeah. would be a backlash right, today right, because right. everybody's yeah. looking to pick a fight. So I don't know. Speaking of picking a fight, I want to talk about James Altucher's article. He was on the show yes. with us, with me and Noam. And I don't know if you know that Seinfeld responded. James Altucher, just to review, he's yeah. part owner of Stand Up New York Comedy Club, wrote an article called New York is Dead and It's Not Coming Back or something like that. New yes. York City is Dead Forever. Okay, right. New York is Dead Forever. Whatever it was, that, that's the theme of the article, is that this pandemic is going to basically destroy New York City in part because people are getting used to working at home and they're getting used to remote work. And so... Meaning, meaning, because of what he was saying, because of what he was the saying, and, and he was basically lambasting James yes. for having left the city and gone to Florida, yes. and said basically, "Stay in Florida. We don't need you. We're going to continue without you. The city's going to be great. Right. Zoom cannot possibly take the place of human contact." Right. So, he, right. He, so in addition to making what I thought were some valid points, he 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 took a few shots at James, and he also said the stand-up New York could use some sprucing up as a club. Right. <laughs> well, 
there's no, there's no arguing. Although I haven't been there in a while, but you know, most comedy clubs. I mean, if you're trying to make an argument, they could use a light sprucing up. It's not a tough argument to make. Yeah, um, the only comedy club that really was on point aesthetically was Comics, which closed down about eight years ago. Yeah, and never caught on in the first place, seemingly. Yeah, with all of its with all of its glory. I mean, it you know, really was a beautiful club. It was a beautiful club. But do you, Perry, do you, were you ever at Comics? No, I, I've not. I was not at Comics. But Comics was a beautiful club. They put a lot of money into it. Yeah, and the owners would would tell us. They would come, you know, I remember the owner saying, you know, we spared no expense, we put money to the club, we're going to have good food, we're going to treat the comics right. And we're nodding our heads thinking, we don't want to tell them the truth, <laughs> which is that this is not a recipe for success. The comedy business, we're like, oh, sounds great. Because <laughs> the comedy business is not about that. It's about keeping expenses low. And nobody's paying a premium for a nice, beautiful room. You know, the hole in the wall by nature. Why? I think it's the informal nature of the art form. You know, it's 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 a little dirty. It's a little gritty. Yeah. You know, it's not a big, beautiful room that you know. And 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 if you're paying all that money well, in the rent, other, the only other comparison I can think of would be a room like a Caroline's or something, right? I mean, there aren't too many clubs that were in anywhere in the country that were as polished as as comics. But you know the other thing about it, Perry. L. It was in a meatpacking district in an area where it was sort of catty corner to where the Apple Store is now, and it's it was a pretty, you know, sort of she she. It 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 just didn't fit. It's a funny right. thing about what makes a business work or not work. It just didn't. Yeah. Well, yeah, there is something low about comedy. There's something what about comedy? No, there's something about comedy that it should be done in a basement at night. You're doing the, there's something, you're offending something because there are other art forms you could go in an opera, you know, chandeliers and a thing. You walk in a room with a chandelier, you go, you do comedy? <laughs> yeah, comedy is sort of just meant as it's like an underground kind of a thing by yeah. nature, you know. But, yes, it's, yes. but when, but when mo- oh, the specials are taped in these sort of beautiful rooms, yeah, which is that's interesting. That's true. But the, but specials are it's a different experience watching something on on television. So a big black right. theater doesn't become uh, doesn't distance you from the ability to appreciate it for some reason. I don't know why. But comedy does feel like it should be done in a speakeasy, like somebody where they yeah. sold. They used to make bathtub gin, you know, and then they they put a mic on it's some, yeah. something. Yeah. So you got to keep expenses down, you know, and uh, you're not get you're not gaining anything by paying more money for rent and more money for. Um, fit out. Yeah. So if you're not gaining anything, you're losing because you're you're just your your expenses are high. You know? So it's really just about the vibe of the room. Vibe is incredibly important in in, in comedy, and I think more than a lot of I think the the success of a comedy business would be more contingent and connected to the vibe variable than most businesses. I don't know why, but they... Yeah, and also the meatpacking district, like you said, was kind of a cool neighborhood club where people went clubbing. Yeah, it's like you're going, you're going to Pastis, or you're going around the corner to a nightclub where they have bottle service. Like, comedy is a, is a grittier sort of, you know, um, um, I don't know. It, yeah, I don't know. We don't have to search I mean, for too many adjectives. But. Anyway, that... Wait, I want to tell you something, though. So Stand Up New York responded mm-hmm. 
via Instagram. They said, Jerry, we're able to multitask. We are sprucing up the club. See, we just stained our tables. We're also currently the biggest live comedy producer in the country. 40 plus shows per week in parks across New York City. You should swing by and do a set sometime. Oh, we just walked by your garage on the Upper West Side where you're where you house your Porsche collection and picked up some garbage we found in front of it. Heard you were in the Hamptons. See you at the club. <laughs> well, you know. That's um, pretty good. That's pretty yeah. good. I would have preferred they said, uh, I'm, you know, like, hey, it, nobody cares what you have to say. What you have to say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you uh, heard, but Seinfeld ended 20 years ago. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. Shut your mouth. Um, <laughs> um, which would have been more yeah. satisfying, but anyway. Um. But I liked, but I, I liked, did you, did you think, um, I read Jerry, Jerry's piece in the, yeah, you know, yeah. in the Times. And, yeah, but I, I thought it was nice to hear someone defending New York. The, the human nature is that we all, is the notion of that, <clears throat> That pendulum, right? It seems like an inescapable response to that which is negative or positive. Any any kind of um, black swan, major, earth-shattering experience, whether it's 9-11. Um, 9-11, I don't know if the banking crisis would fit there, but even when that guy lit his shoe on fire on the airplane, it, it, the shoe bomb never went off, and no one since has been able, nobody before or since, there's been one person in the history of the world who tried to light a shoe bomb. And now everybody all over the fucking world has got to take their shoe off. Um, when they walk through security, I think it's just connected to the notion that New York will be back. It, it's, it's, it, you know, I mean, Paris went through the plague for God's sake. I remember walking through, were you there, Dan, in, in Paris? Did you go in the tombs where they have all the bones stacked on one no, another? No, I didn't, I didn't check out the, uh, the tomb. Incredible. But, hey, you know, half the city it was dying in a plague. It came back, baby. Oh, but, they, they, you know, uh, um, James's basic point, uh, I think the, the cornerstone of his argument was that, right. that there is a, a major change is that people are used to and able to work from home. And Seinfeld's point was that working from home is no substitute for being right. together for the dynamism and the energy of being in the presence of each other. Yes. I think that's yes. valid. I think, but I do think, well, we've talked about this, Doug, there will be a change. Yes. There will be commercial real estate will be affected. There will be less office. Well, you're a hundred percent. Right. But it's not over. For, for It's folks. not, it's not over. And, and here's what's, at least my thesis, and I bet on my thesis. I'm not just talking from an armchair. I, uh, I, I've dumped some money into, into a commercial uh, REIT. Uh, on The point being, human nature is such that uh, people will go back to malls, not everywhere. A lot of them will go out of business, a lot of individual places. But we will still gather in central entertainment zones. Office buildings will be repriced. They're not going to be, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe there are more creative elements that will come 
to New York that otherwise couldn't have afforded to do so. And I don't know. I mean, that's the history of New York in the village and in Soho and the, the of course. things. Of course. But what I'm surprised at is how personally everybody seemed to take it. There's one thing to disagree with James. James said, okay, I think New York is dying and it's going to stay dead. Right. It's one thing to say, actually, I disagree and here's why. It's another thing to be like, you're a putz, fuck you. Right, right, it's, right. It's a shit. Yeah. Shit. You know, why is everybody taking it personally? Nobody takes it personally when we say that climate change is going to devastate yeah. the planet. We say... Yes, it is if we don't act or right, some people don't right. think it's the case. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, when people predict catastrophe, people predict another four years of Trump yeah. and we're facing existential crisis, say many people. <laughs> right. That is the, the very existence of America is in jeopardy. Right. That's a dire prediction. But I don't get angry at those people. I simply say, actually, I don't think so. Here's right, why. Right. Why the the fury and this kind of... You know why I think Seinfeld... I'm a new, real New Yorker and fuck you and New York and we're not going to right. fuck you and it's New York. You know, why that reaction? Well, I think Seinfeld... Why not Seinfeld. just very calm? Actually, I think that Zoom will not replace right. offices and there's still reasons to live in it. But why, why, why that kind of response? Yeah, no, that would seem like the more appropriate calm sort of just deconstruct the argument or make your own argument. But it's like, um, I think people are very emotional right now for one. And then for two, there is a bit of this kind of, um, you know, if you're going to walk out and give up on it, then fuck you vibe or, or, not, or, or, you know, because it's, it's in a, I don't know when something's in a difficult place, then the, the notion of rallying around that, which has been wounded um, is that much more important. And that's an emotional experience. And so New York City is not, you're not just examining or underwriting a company as a function of whether or not you're going to buy a stock. You're, it's, it's alive in that sense. It's, it's like you're watching something go down and you can stay and support it and fight for it on some level, I guess. I think that's what... We want, we want some glimmers of hope right now, I think. Right. We, we need to see, um, you know, we're going to get through this. It's going to be. But he's not saying that, uh, that, that the world is doomed. He's saying New York is doomed. So in aggregate, I don't agree. Uh, and I said to him why on a previous podcast, but look, things change, you know, um, cities rise, they fall. New York will die someday. Uh, yeah, well, you know, the sun is going to blow up someday. Pardon? I say the sun. The sun is going to yes. blow up someday, so the question too. Is, the question is, and th- and things might change. New York might not all. I mean, Philadelphia was once the biggest city in America. It's not anymore. New York may decline at some point. Yeah. Um, you know, that's things. That's how things work. I don't think it's imminent, but I don't, I I don't think it's anything to take personally either. Right, but also the notion that, you know, even if some of the economic dynamism dies down in urban centers by way of... Or losing home, love, well, yeah, you know, maybe different types of, you know... What's that? No, your, your sound was bad for a second, yeah. So you're saying oh, urban, oh, oh. urban dynamism. 
Well, yeah, no, the, the notion of, of all of that, all of these economic drivers, you know, it's that kind of calamity that brings about change um, is not necessarily a long-term net negative for a city. I mean, things, you know, things consolidate and then they expand depending on what the underlying forces at play are. I mean, I remember going to Soho when I was a kid and it was just a warehouse district. And then there was like Andy Warhol. I mean, you know, he was there before my time. But when you heard about these people and then Soho became sort of an interesting artsy place where people didn't need a ton of dough and could live in lofts in a relatively dangerous area that was vacant at night. And it's since turned into this relatively corporate kind of flagship stores. It's, it's, you know, I, I don't know, maybe New York gets repriced. I mean, it's going to ding me as a landlord, but, but um, aside from the pro- profit perspective, it, there are aspects that could become more dynamic or attractive. I don't know. I think for creative people, especially comedians, I mean, New York is the heart and soul in so many ways of what we do. And so the thought that um, it's dead forever is devastating. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I think that's why people are reacting. It that would way. be, but the, it would be, but it seems to me, because I so do not believe it, right? That I, I was not upset by it, right? You know, yeah, generally speaking, you don't get upset by things unless you think there's some, uh, you know, grain of truth in it. He said, "Listen, everybody that ran to the suburbs to escape this COVID, there's going to be a vaccine at some point. It's not going to be a hundred percent effective, but it'll be effective enough to get people get back." to mitigate a lot of fear and anxiety. They're going to get so bored in the suburbs. Believe me, at some point, they'll, they'll be back sniffing around the city. You know, again, things get repriced. Come on, how long? I mean, look, if you have kids, that's a different story. If you have no, kids... No, I think, I think that, you know, I'm desperate to get back into the city. Well, you are. No, you are. I was just thinking of people with children... That, that, you know, have corporate jobs and then can work from home and weren't in love with New York to begin with. They were there because their salary was there and they couldn't, they couldn't commute for two hours a day. I think those people will stay in Connecticut and yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. I think that will leave room for other people to come in that want to be in New York. Right. Or New yeah. York. yeah. So I don't know. I mean. I think the other thing was, is that Jerry was giving James like, oh, well, you're in Florida. And then it was like, right. yeah, well, you're in the fucking Hamptons. So yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what do you, you know? Right. Yeah. Jerry was a little bit harsh, I thought. And especially because he is this billionaire, uh, you know, one should be a little bit, you know, he's, he's the, ma- the man with all the power and it's being a little bit of a bully, I think. Yeah, I'm somebody who's far less lower on the totem pole, right. and they call him a putz in a major publication, and basically, you know, tell him to go to Florida, and, and he insulted Florida too. Yeah, which, you know, which I don't doesn't bother me necessarily, but <laughs> um, but basically said Florida was, you know, I mean, I forgot how he phrased it, but you know, it was a creative dead zone basically, and yeah. you know, <laughs> a fitting punishment for James to have to be there for 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 you know a long time to come. 
Again, yeah. taking, taking James' words very personally. You don't agree with him, you don't agree with him, you know? Um, Although they do say that- The Mayan, the Mayan said we're all going to be dead, you know, by the end of the year, but nobody's, nobody's blowing up against the Mayans and saying, you putzes. Right. Yeah. Saying, also, you know, one could argue that- well, People predict doom sometimes, you know? Uh, it's not, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a reason to um, snap at them. Now, if you don't like James for other reasons, okay, well, then, then talk about that. Maybe you don't think his club is, need, could use some sprucing up. Okay, fine, you know. Um, you don't like his hair. I, I get it. He hasn't, he, he probably could use a haircut. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got mine cut, as you can see. Yeah, yeah, Dan looks good. But Ariel, you see Dan's hair? He looks good with a haircut. That's why I harass him, so that he stays, he, he looks good with it. He he does look good with it, but I also like that long, shaggy... Some people like it, you know. Now, we were in lockdown, Dove, so that, you know, for at least for the first couple of months, I wasn't able to get a hair. That's right. No, on full lockdown, yes. We're on full lockdown. Now, now, now laundromats were open, so I have no excuse for my underwear. <laughs> but, uh, that was a joke I used to tell during <laughs> Zoom shows earlier in the pandemic. Um... <laughs> You know, it always did okay. It never, it never annihilated. But. Are these, uh, by the way, are these, are these outdoor shows picking up steam? Are they becoming? Yeah, I just did one in the park in Central Park in the Sheep Meadow. She, I think they call it that because I believe sheep used to graze there. Well, the sheep, yeah, are sheep gone, but the sheep are gone there. now. But comedy is is so taking its place, <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's by a big oak tree, you know, near Tavern on the Green on the west side of Sheep Meadow, and. Yeah, just people sitting on the grass in a semicircle, and um, how many people can? Because you're not amplified, right? So yeah, well, no, actually, they, the last time I did it, there was a mic with a little handheld speaker, very, very obviously not particularly powerful. Yeah, it helped a little bit. Uh, maybe like forty. What the, like, the, like, like the situation we saw the rabbi in in the park. Yeah, maybe cool. like the the rabbi yeah. guy. So it helped a bit, and maybe forty people, and they were enjoying it. They really were. Yeah. I feel a little self-conscious because there's other people that aren't there for the show. Yeah. And when people aren't there for a show yeah, and it yeah, yeah. It's proximity, I feel like an idiot. It's very distracting. It happens that same experience, that same feeling happens. Like if you work in a club that that's, uh, it's not, you ever work a club that was really supposed to be like a retail strip and there's a window in front. And yeah. so they'll put a, they try to block the window, but every now and then you can see people peering in, you know, it's, it's, well, also, uh, sometimes you do a corporate gig. So uh, corporate gigs are often like when you perform for a company's annual whatever. They're in a hotel. Yeah. They're in like the Chesapeake room, or you know, the wind jam, the wind jammer room, whatever yeah. they call it. <laughs> yes. So you're yeah. in these rooms, and it's it's and and people are opening the door, and hotel guests are just walking by, yeah. Yeah. and they can yeah. hear you, and you know, doing your shtick, and it's just, I just feel self conscious doing. Doing my well, uh, and it's even worse if the gig's not going well because then it's that much more pronounced and those corporate humps, you know, they don't understand that in comedy a lot of it's you know the psychological the need to be in proximity to one another in order to appreciate it. I did a corporate. I mean, you've done a lot more than me, but they put thirty people in a room that seats, you know, seven hundred, and you, you, <laughs> I, it's it's a horrible feeling. There's something about all that space you feel swallowed up by it. I'd rather work for 10,000 people. It's far less anxiety. Anyway. 
Yeah, well, the corporate gigs, you know, that's it's it's for the money. They pay well, and 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 you are. But they don't understand, and people that are interested in comedy, it's an interesting consideration psychologically because what is it about? You know, it's it's the contagious nature of laughter that is served by ergonomics and proximity, and if you don't have that, the whole experience becomes swallowed up. You know, it really impacts it. I mean, it's it's profound the impact. You and- you have to start saying like you you can't have a room like you have to have rooms that are to capacity. You can't have you can't yes. book for a corporate gig in a seven hundred person. You don't you don't always have a you don't always have an option, and so you can't really when they're paying you to come to a gig. They're just like you know you get an agent that says if you said to your agent you know look can you make sure that they're in a room that it's it's just uh you can do the best you can but you had to do the best the fact, you, can. you do the best you can but you had to accept the fact that they're not running a comedy club and they they don't do this uh every day so they don't really know how to make it they don't know and be, and they don't necessarily care you know then so you know if if it if the show doesn't go great okay then they have the the golf tournament the next day i mean they they, they have yeah. different activities okay well you know we'll also have a singer we booked a singer too yeah. So that the, the comedy show doesn't go well. Hopefully, they'll enjoy the singer. It or is the such an intensely that experience. I wonder if there are any other lines of work where people experience, you know, hum, that level of when something is going badly <laughs> in like a corporate scenario. That gig I did in the Seychelles for that Arab. Um, <laughs> that gig. I, I, did I tell you, Periel, I went yeah. to uh, the Seychelles about 900 miles off the coast of Somalia. Yeah, it's far away. We're yeah. Off of Africa. And so, yeah, they flew, they flew us out for one show. And I got to the resort. I get in the room. It's, it's these, a couple of very wealthy Arab guys. And then um, nine, about 19 hookers. <laughs> And then like five homosexuals that that um, that do a lot that sort of tend to the prostitutes, <laughs> and so and English was none of them. I don't think most of the people didn't have English as their first language. So you got it's it was well, they were escorts, you know. I don't want to say hooker, but but they 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 were professional. They were they were so professional, um, you know. They were very professional women. <laughs> These are professionals, you understand. It's not your garden variety hoe. And, and they so, flew all the women in from South Africa. Okay, can you backtrack here for a second? Yeah, First sure. of all, who was in charge here? There was one guy who was like. I have money to burn and I've got yeah, you six hookers and I want Doug. Oh, no, nobody says, nobody says hooker. Nobody says, but it's just sort of understood that this is a private affair and they have this, they, they build this room at a resort and, and it's a performance space and they fly these people in and they don't stay and mix with everybody in the resort. They have their own piece of it. It's um, you, the guy flies himself in on in a helicopter. You know, it's like it was a real James Bond kind of thing. It was full on James there. Bond. Were you in a private plane? Oh no, I wasn't. No, no, no. Uh, they 
this the the he was uh, I think you know a, a, a billionaire, but not like an American billionaire that you know you just you're still a, an American person. I, I would imagine if you grow up in Saudi Arabia the, and you're of that ilk. Entertainment for you is like it's like you know when somebody brings a camel in the room and the camel does some tricks and then they bring the camel out of the room. In America, you're like you're a bit of a little mini star in the room and people want to talk to you if you are funny. And here is like you know okay good good boy nice nice and then they just sort of move you along. <laughs> he didn't care how funny you were or what you did. He's unimpressed by television. Nobody that flies themselves in on a chopper and hangs out with 19 hookers is impressed by showbiz people. Um, you know, they run shit. They run things, these people. And so he knew how to behave. This is a real man. You understand? How did you get this gig? He, this guy watched the whole show with his own bottle service in a room that he built without, <laughs> with only 25 people in a room that seats 300. I mean, it was absurd. It was yeah, you, you said, how did you get your, your your manager called or your agent called? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, an agent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, Listen, how, anybody... like, why, like, specifically you, I'm imagining. Like, this yeah. is... Well, uh, I don't know who chose me. They, these people on islands, you know, it was, like a, it was like a villain from a James Bond movie. They have a Dutch handler. And so I don't interface with the guy who owns the operation much. It, there was a, a, a good-looking Dutchman on a motorcycle, and he would he would organize the affair, you know. And then and how um, much time did you do? Like, are you up about there? Twenty-five minutes, about twenty-five minutes, and um, it was it was fine. They were polite people, but challenging and sort of the, you could tell, like the women that were there, it was like you could just feel that they were sort of hired to be there. It was fucking. Bananas. Yeah. You would think a guy like that might send one to your room after, you know. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking maybe the guy goes, Hey, I thought you were really funny. You know, I'm not I'm not with all these broads. You know, you come back, come backstage with us, have a drink. He sent me out of there like like a like a dancing camel. I did my I did my dance and they picked me all right and then move it on. And then they uh after they he entertainment to him you could just see it it was like a, a 500 year old you know a bedouin leader in a tent like the king and you know chop chop and then he's eating he's you know the guy's got a gold and he's got a chest open and he's eating he's come in entertain good good boy moving on nothing i got i he gave me nothing this guy and he liked me and he treated me like a dog <laughs> treated me like a dog and was a fan <laughs> you can only imagine if this guy didn't like the entertainment yeah, no, listen. Um, that's a long-ass flight. Yeah, for 25 minutes of work, it was, a, it was a, you go all the way to the Seychelles. I mean, all the way to the Seychelles. The Seychelles is like in the middle of fucking nowhere. I mean, it, how it's like a 24-hour flight, isn't it? I don't know yeah, it takes about... Far. Yeah, it takes in the neighborhood of, yeah, 20 hours to get there. It's the Indian like Ocean, that. I believe. Yeah, it's far I believe it's the Indian Ocean. I think it's the oldest, um, uh, the oldest island chain in the in the in the world. Does that make sense in terms of age? I mean, theologically. I mean, I theologically. Guess yeah. I mean, it's um, yeah. It's it's a fascinating place that no, nobody ever brings up. I thought the station. I didn't know what it was. 
not a lot of new islands, you know. You hear about that new well, island? No, yeah, no, I realized that when I said it, oldest island, how do you determine that? But I, I believe. But maybe I it's believe. like a two billion years old and the other islands are a billion. I mean, I don't know. But anyway, uh, what were some of the other topics I had sent you uh, for this week? I don't know if you wanted to talk a, a bit about uh, Jeff Ross. Oh, no. oh yeah. Um, Dove, what's your sense? Do you want to broach that? Well, topic? you know, I mean, I, I I try to stay out of the Twitter sphere for, for now in my life. I, I, you know, my mother... <laughs> Suggested that I may need meds because I, I am in an, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it was a, you know, offhanded suggestion in terms of just being generally easily aggravated by things, you know, and then, and, um, you know, I, so the Jeff Ross, the, I've been trying to stay away from all of the stuff, the stimulus, stimulus, stimuli. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know with Ross. I, and it was one person, right? And so, well, just just to just to um, summarize, yeah, refresh the audience because maybe not everybody Jeff knows. Jeff Ross so. is a comic. You may know him. He's the Roastmaster General. Yes, yeah, Roastmaster. He's accused. Has been accused. He runs the post office, and and as well, and and he roasts uh, comedically as well. He's has the been accused by a woman who's now in her thirties. Of she said that they had sex when he was thirty-three and she was fifteen, which is needless to say below the legal age of consent everywhere in America. Um, yeah. So that is her accusation. It is an accusation that, uh, you know, she, she has no direct evidence for it, but she has a lot of circumstantial evidence for it. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Well, but now, what, what is the consideration is whether or not he deserves to be canceled? The, consider the consideration, I guess, is, I mean, as we, we are, as we, as is the case every time this comes up, because it comes up, yeah. you know, it, it came up, up with several other people. You have a guy accused of something. We're not in a right. court of law, but people are entitled to make their own decisions. But, yeah. um, you know, you get this Twitter momentum going and calls for cancellation, if you will. Calls so for she, what, was, what was the tenor of the the affair was she did she feel violated is she talking about like okay, what was her just to summarize yeah she went after him by her own account okay. at that time right. she was very very attracted to him and she came on well, stop right there for <laughs> we don't we need we need to explain that variable we need science and uh we got to explain anyway but this yeah. is right, very so, unusual. Yeah, I mean, this is... So, so well, let me finish my summary, Perio. Okay. So she came on to him. He said, are you sure? She said, yes, they had an affair. It went on. This is according, all according to her for several years from the time she was 15 off and on till I think she was in her early 20s. Wow. Um, and then at some point in later years, she decided that um, she wanted to... That, that she was manipulated, mistreated, and that that he needs, Jeff needs to be punished. So she went online, and at first nobody really was listening to her, but the, the story eventually made it to uh, an article in Vulture.com, and it became a big story, and so here we are. Did she, did she describe, or did she give an example of the types of manipulation that, that went on, or that, that she perceived as having gone on? Well, I... No, but but legally, it's it's you know, 
you don't need to. I well, mean, I, I understand the behavior. Yeah. Um, well, she says that um, her father encouraged her to. Yes, that by all accounts, the father was uh, okay with it. Um, well, more than okay. I mean, I'm not saying the question. The question is: is nobody can, assuming the accusations are true, nobody can say that it's it, it was a criminal act. The question is: is what exactly is the the, the minute you and I tried on Twitter to have conversations with people about okay, it. you can't do it. The minute you, you say, well, let's examine. Not to say that he didn't do wrong. He did do wrong. There's no nuance. No but I, I let's, tried. let's try to ascertain the degree of immorality so that we can, there is a big difference nobody wants between, to even have a discussion nobody wants to have that discussion oh you're defending a rapist no i didn't say that i said that there's degrees of immorality and let's try to determine where this fits in the age of consent in nigeria is 11 unfortunately jeff has not been active in that part of the world and so he's been forced to meet his people here and so now we have to deal with these western these these pesky Western. Uh, well, Neil uh, Brennan uh, got uh, called out. Neil Brennan on his podcast said, yeah. "Well, they had a relationship, so he felt that that was mitigating." In other words, it was well. It's it is mitigating relative to raping somebody in an alley. I mean, there are there are great great gradations of of offense. So nobody can argue that you know that there's impropriety, but you must ascertain the degree upset impropriety, if you're going to levy a goddamn judgment um, or, or at least a punishment, you can judge all you want, but we, we, we well, got to get clear on some of this because there's a massive difference between the relationship between Woody Allen and Mia Farrow and, and not Mia Farrow, you, Dan, you know, in, in, um, in, in Manhattan. He was um, seen Muriel Hemingway, yeah. And so there's that relationship where you don't feel as though he was really in violation. I understand. I mean, she was 17 in the film. But um, assuming she were two years younger, yes, if I were her father, I'd want to, you know, you'd want to put somebody in prison or kill her, you know. But, but yes, not all violations are equal. And so there needs to be some nuance in the discussion. Nobody's, you didn't argue that it's not necessarily wrong because inevitably there can be some form of manipulation when you're dealing with a 15 year old, but you know. Uh, right. And to even bring that up, even have a discussion, even a discussion where you might be wrong. Maybe Neil's wrong. Maybe Neil was wrong when he said it's okay. And the, the fact that they were in a relationship Listen, makes it better. We're doing and the same he, thing around race. Just, and just when, are, he, when Neil said that, uh, you know, Twitter went to work. And said course. he was defending pedophilia. Right, right, right. You know, at least some yeah. people. I don't know how many people said it, but some people said it. And, and uh, you know, and I chimed in to defend Neil, and then I was taken to task by... You can't have, you can't have an intellectually dynamic, curious... Uh, experience in a public setting. Um, I mean, you can't question how do you, how are we, I guess as a group, um, supposed to conduct inquiry and make and create opinions that are informed if all we are allowed to do 
is communicate with other people in our echo chamber. Otherwise, we'll be punished for any thought we have outside of whatever. But Twitter is not the forum in which to do that. I think that by design, Twitter is the forum in which people feel comfortable um, and sort of shine by just attacking and, you know, virtue signaling and then disappearing into the world of, you know, the ether. Yeah. I've always wondered, speaking of discussion, is what, what goes on in the state and I've had that uh, we've discussed this, what goes on in the state Senate when there, somebody has to make this law. Somebody had to decide that 15, that, that 17 was okay, and 16, you're, you're, a, you're a pedophile. Right. Somebody oh, had that, to, that somebody to make that decision. So I'm just, I've always wondered at it about what goes on in the legislature if, if a state representative stands up and says, now, I understand <laughs> that... <laughs> I understand that the young lady, uh, 15, is certainly a young lady, no question about it. Uh, <laughs> but my constituents feel that she is uh, of, of uh, that nature has endowed her with the... Uh, with no, the but that's absolutely right. I mean, Dan's making it funny, but some of these lines seem arbitrary, though this one is not. The notion of a 15-year-old being ill-prepared to deal with somebody 15 years her senior is is inarguable. And we don't live in an agrarian society where the priority of having... With all due respect uh, to the gentleman from the Lower East Side, (laughs) uh, I feel as though uh, 13 would be an appropriate uh, minimum age that my constituents, who are rural folk, you understand, and I guess... (laughs) Get lonely. Uh, not a lot of women folk around, especially during harvesting season. And yes, that's right, during harvesting season. Um. <coughs> First of all, part of the problem is that the people in charge actually do sound like that. Yes, you're right. Uh, the ones in North Carolina, maybe. Those aren't the people <laughs> who should be making those laws. Um, no, every state has to make a law. Every state has to come up with a number. Well, well I mean, everything's in the ballpark, though. Like, it's between yeah, 16 and 17, right, most right, in yes. this country, anyway. Right. Um, right. And to be very clear, this is not, pedophilia is uh, prepubescent children. This is not what right. we're talking about. But I wouldn't dare say that on Twitter. Well, I mean, it's the definition would, they would of say, the well, I know it's the definition, but people don't want to hear that either. They want to just that, say... That's how <laughs> charged it all becomes. You're not allowed to say the definition, for God. I mean, it's it's wild out there. I mean, you actually have a few really funny jokes about, like, the actual the actual definition of a fucking word, right? I do? What, no, what, what, I mean, maybe you do. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's in there somewhere, but it's like... You're going to dove or me with the definition jokes? I, either way. Either way, I mean, the notion of, um, I don't know, it, you know. Look, I don't think 15-year-olds should be fucking 30-year-olds, or 30-year-olds yeah, sure. should be fucking 15-year-olds. Right. But, you know, and what do you think is going to happen when you have, like, obviously that's a disaster, right? Look, there's so, no know. argument that it's ill-conceived or against that being the case. I think the only thing that we want to be able to engage about, whether it's race or Me Too related or or underage, is a discussion about 
The same, literally, precisely the same model our legal system uses to determine the degree to which you need to be um, punished. Also, also, I think it was 30 and 15, not 33. 33. It was 30. In the case of Jeff, it was, the accusation is 33. I mean, when we, when my girlfriends and I were 15 years old, like, I mean, one of my girlfriends had sex with a 26-year-old guy, you know? I mean, and years later, when she was 15, and she wound up marrying him. I mean, they got divorced later, you know, many years later. But, you know, Courtney Stodden married that guy, uh, that that actor. You guys know who he is? I don't know who Courtney Stodden is, let alone the actor that she married. I mean, well, I can... you know, I'm sure it's an example of somebody with a major age gap, regardless. But it's like Courtney Alexis you know. Stodden. She is a Stodden American media. Pro- she married. Well, yeah, I mean, but we have to draw a line somewhere. But we can't let everybody have sex with anybody they want. So I, I think a 17 is a 18 is a reasonable line. So, but the question is, is you know, is is what how, what is the degree of um, immorality and, and therefore what, what's the degree of punishment? Should Jeff, there are, because there are people that would see Jeff go to jail. There are people for whom 10 years in state prison for Jeff would be appropriate. I don't think that that would be appropriate. I think that that would be excessive. Although uh, I think it's reasonable. And even she says here, please don't ever do this to another minor again. Even if the parents sign off, she was groomed as a child bride and verbally abused by Doug Hutchinson. No 15 year old is equipped mentally to be in a relationship with a 30 something year old person. Right. Well, you're a hundred percent right. But there's, I, I don't think there's any reasonable argument there. I it just, it, and it's not even an argument. It's, it's only my desire would be to enter into a discussion about what went w- w- to understand the context of what went on, the degree of offense. Right. And I, it's only upon that level of consideration that we would be able to determine whether or not the punishment fits the crime. I mean, this is literally 300-year-old legal theory. I mean, it's, well, she says, why are we not following our own? My understanding is that she um, is very forthcoming and that she pursued him. I mean, she actively pursued him. Right. And yeah. with Dave and, and other adults, um, including her own father, um, enabled that behavior and supported that behavior. To what extent you want to say that that's a mitigating circumstance is, is up for discussion, but, but uh, others, others, certainly people would say that that, that does not mitigate it at all. Uh, and, and were I even to say that that might be mitigating, I would be taking the task for that by certain people. So what did they say to you? They just said, you're you know, defending, defending pedophilia. Right. Just because, and I, I was simply defending Neil. Neil's discussion of of the yeah. of the, of the uh, now, if you took a snapshot of the definition of the word pedophilia from the dictionary and posted it, do you think you would also get similar? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yes, I do. If I, if, if if I did it with the uh, you know, in order to imply that that it's not pedophilia to have sex with a fifteen-year-old, just to have that discussion um, would would be would be bad, you know, uh, 
I mean, just because it's not pedophilia doesn't, it doesn't mean it's not, not wrong. But, but it's also not bestiality. I mean, I don't understand. Yeah, well, right. But people that they, they don't want to have discussions of any kind. Many some people, and especially well, not, on on, not on Twitter. Right? You're right. It's tw- Twitter is a, Twitter is. But I think in person too, a lot of people are like that. Especially a lot of people we've had on the podcast. But Twitter makes it worse. Twitter makes it worse. I agree with you. Um, to the anonymity of Twitter, when you yeah. when you're not in somebody's proximity, you know, it makes it it, it makes it worse. But um, anyway, no, it's all it's all more polarized than it's ever been. I mean, I'll touch or write something, and people are emotional about that. And instead of sort of deconstructing the argument, they you know, Seinfeld was more attacking than sort of just offering a counter opinion. Yeah, he did both. And, he offered a counter opinion and then called yeah. him a putz. Right, right. In, and a so, rare, in a rare Seinfeldian use of Yiddish, because Seinfeld has spent much of right. his career avoiding Yiddish. He's not, exactly <laughs> Jack, he's not exactly Jackie Mason. Seinfeld really never referred to Judaism, course, Judaism yeah. in his stand-up you, you, act. And you see that as Yiddish avoidance? <laughs> I think so. Uh, in, in, well, in the show Seinfeld... <laughs> I don't know if it's an active avoidance. I, I mean, maybe breaking the Yiddish. I don't know if it was an active avoidance, but I think his. Some people use Yiddish and some people don't, and he yeah, never yeah, did. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, he never uh, did. You know, I heard Billy Joel use Yiddish on a, in an interview. Yeah. A few years ago, and I was kind of shocked. Because well, there's a guy who's been dancing around his own Judaism for decades. <laughs> we all right. thought he was Italian. He would sing about uh, his his come out Virginia, the Catholic girls, and the Italian restaurant bottle of red. Well, but there are also oh, look. I don't know. I haven't followed any of those careers. And Mama Leone moving out. Anthony song. Anthony, you know, remember Anthony? Right, but you don't know how he how he grew up. You know, it, it's uh, like there are people that certainly where the way I grew up. Like I identify with aspects of you know Lower East Side Jewy kind of hustle culture, but. In terms of a more elevated, you know, lots of Yiddish references, like, I, you know. I no, mean, that's what I'm saying. Some people are more Yiddish. So whether it's avoidance or whether it's just he's not a Yiddish-using person, I was su- kind of surprised right. to hear him call, I'll touch her a yeah, right. Call for that a reason. And I was also, I heard Billy Joel referring to uh, being, feeling, um, I think nachis was the word that he used. He was describing his daughter's piano playing. He said, it's right, right. And I was like, nachis. who are nachis. you? I mean... You know, yeah. you've been, because he, Billy Joel was always very uh, not Jew. You know, and you look, I get it, you're a rock star. There's nothing, there's nothing less rock and roll than Judaism, let's face it. Well, but there are also different kinds of Jews. I mean, Israeli Jews are, are, tend to be, you know, it's more like, uh, you know, there's Jews like you, and then there's, I'm half Jewish, and I'm, you know. I mean, Lenny Kravitz wears a big fucking diamond Jewish star around today. Yeah. So, yeah. No, they're well different. Yeah, but Lenny Kravitz will never say, will never use Yiddish. Well, but the point being that, that a guy like Billy Joel, I mean, I think he had a little bit of a working class background on Long Island, right? I mean, it's not like we grew up on the Upper East Side with a, a, under a rap. Well, Billy Joel is an interesting case. I, you know, his grandfather was a very wealthy industrialist in Germany. I mean, millions of dollars, you know. Uh, and, and it was all taken yeah. by the Nazis. It was like really? Joel Industries or something. It was like textile. I don't know, whatever it was. I didn't and, know that. And then the Nazis took it, you know, they took Jewish businesses. So it was, the Joels were reduced to, to um, poverty or at least to whatever they were reduced to. And they came to America. And I don't know what 
his father, I think, ran out on the family and went back to Europe after the war or something like that. I don't know the history precisely, but yeah, yeah he, you know, he was kind of a middle-class guy, I guess. But, but his, 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 um, you know, his grandfather well, was a big industrialist. And what sometimes later in life. About? Pardon? What are, how have we veered into? <laughs> yeah, I know, we went into well, something. Well, said that Billy Joe was middle class, and he is, but he's, right. he's from fairly rarefied stock. His, his, um, I believe his uncle was a big conductor. I know his brother's a conductor. Yeah, he's got, he's, he's a conductor in Europe. Talent. Yeah. Should we try to have him on the show? Huh? Should we try to get him on the show? Yeah, you can try. Cool. I mean, she, you know, yeah, could try, sure. She sure, could try, yeah, because, I mean, okay, try. You know, God bless you. I mean, <laughs> all right, it's eight o'clock. Go ahead, try, try to. I mean, try to. You know, try to swim the Atlantic Ocean. Go, go ahead. I mean, you know, I'm not stopping you. You know, you see how far you get. I think. <laughs> um, I think I've I've, I've achieved um, more difficult things than having. Uh, no, you have. No, you have. Not I haven't. <laughs> Achieve more difficult things than getting Billy Joel on our podcast? Yeah, who cares? What have you done that is more difficult than that? <laughs> I mean, I've written two fucking books. I've Absolutely. had a baby. Yes. Um, a lot of baby. You and a and hundred billion other women over the course of the, <laughs> you know, over the course of human history. Over the course of human history. <laughs> that have had a baby. I mean, and as far as writing two books, yes, that's an impressive achievement. Not as impressive as getting Billy Joel on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, I have to say that it would be really sad if that were my most impressive achievement. Yeah, that would be very really sad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that, 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 uh... Well, it would be, you know, um... Well, it, well, might not, it might not be your most profound Right, it would not be your most profound. I think, most, I, but it would be, it's something that's very difficult. It would be very difficult for me to juggle ten balls. Right. I mean, it's... That would be my most difficult achievement if I were able to... <laughs> Does not mean that it is the most that would that would with which I would be most proud or of which I would be <laughs> But that's a fast it's it's like, a very interesting distinction because juggling ten balls would be the most impressive thing anybody <laughs> could possibly pull off. And yet it would be the least important thing they'd ever done. But um but I the mean, most impressive, yeah. yes. I mean specifically Billy Joel or anybody sort of like Billy Joel? Well, anybody at that level, you know, but uh, I mean, I don't want to disparage Dennis D. Young because we did have him. He's wonderful. And, yeah, and I mean, I don't know his what own right. talking about. But, but Billy Joel is, he, I mean, he's the piano man. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> All right. All right. It's eight, you know, it's 8.06. Okay, so let's, let's, we had a nice uh, tight discussion today. Uh, yeah. So I want to thank uh, Dove and Periel, and we'll get back to classic rock after this uh, break, after this word from uh, Town Tire. And um, you can listen and also watch this episode on YouTube, and you can follow us at Live from the Table. Email us at... Email us at podcast at comedycellar.com. And we'll leave you with Pizza Terra and Chicago if you leave me now. <laughs> See you next time. Bye-bye.